Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. My sermons tend to be shorter if I sit, so as a blessing to you. (laughs) Okay, somebody stop Nancy. That was completely uncalled for. I love you folks. I just love coming over here and seeing you, most of you. Well, we're going to continue in a series of messages Pastor Seth is on called Blessed Quest. Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 4. So find your way to that passage, but I want to ask you something. Uh, In Psalm 55, David says something that I think you're going to relate to. As I read this passage, and it'll be on the screen, it's... You have felt the way David feels in this passage. I know you have because you're like me. And I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. Just a word meaning a pause. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. You felt like that. You've had days where you wish, wish you could just kind of get away, go to that quiet place. Some of you, so you have a happy place, a geographical location. Maybe it's just your, your quiet den, or maybe it's a cabin in the, the hills, or a place at the coast, or any place. We, we sometimes have those days where just, you know what, if I could just get away, it would be wonderful. You know why he felt that way? Well, that, that was verses 6, 7, and 8. If you want to know why he said that, you'd have to go back and see what led him to make that comment. Verse 1, give ear to my prayer, O God, and don't hide yourself from my supplication. Have you ever felt like your prayers were being unanswered, that God is not listening? Yes, you have. You have sometimes felt like God was not responding in your timetable. That causes you anxiety to some degree. Attend to me and hear me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan noisily. Can you relate to this? Some of you? Because of the voice of the enemy. Because of the oppression of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me. And horror has overwhelmed me. Now you understand verse 6. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I'd fly away and be at rest. I'd go to my place and I'd be, I'd be happy. At least give me a break for a while. You've all felt that way. That's the way, David, that's the way David felt. All of us at one time or another, folks, have felt like escaping the hardships and the difficulties that life has thrown our way. I don't know if you remember years ago. I don't think the commercial is on television now. I'm going to date myself just a little bit. How many of you remember the old commercial on Calgon bath soap? Anybody? 
You remember their, their whole thing. There's a, some lady's having a particular difficult, stressful day. She's finally taken all she can stand. And what does she say? Calgon, take me away. Right? And all of a sudden, boom, she's in paradise in a bubble bath. Yeah. If only it were that simple. I can see myself having a bad day at work and telling my boss, I really need to go home and take a bubble bath, boss. <laughs> if only it were that easy. In these, in these beatitudes, every single one of them that you read, it's going to cross the grain of what we would consider the norm. Jesus, in this message, when he's done with it, they marvel at what he said, because the things he said just cut across the normal way we think. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? All of these beatitudes, one man writes, are paradoxical because what they promise for what they demand seems incongruous and upside down in the eyes of the natural man, end quote. Isn't that true? But in this second beatitude, Jesus is once again going to turn life inside out. That is a truth that Jesus will be doing time and time again as he goes through this sermon that you can basically read in about 12 minutes. Wouldn't you love to have a 12-minute sermon? Shut up, Nancy. In in verse 3, we see the first step in our blessed quest is, is coming to Christ, and we do that by seeing our poverty of spirit. We're we're bankrupt spiritually. We must come to see our total destitution without God. Unless we see our insufficiency apart from God, listen, we will never cast ourselves at Jesus' feet. We have to see ourselves as being absolutely and totally surrendered to Him, acknowledging our total dependence on Him, And that we become open to what he desires to do in us. That's that's where the quest for blessedness has to begin. Absolute, total dependency, realizing before God, we have nothing on our own to contribute. Bankrupt spiritually. But in this second one, I want you to first of all notice, number one, the posture. The posture. Blessed are they that mourn. Once again, what? That's like saying, happy are the sad. That's what he's saying, right? The saint is saying, happy are the sad. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How could those who mourn, those who grieve be blessed? How how could the way to happiness, blessedness, how can our quest for blessedness be the path of sorrow and grief and mourning? How can the way of rejoicing be that way? Well, first of all, what does blessed are those that mourn mean? What what does that mean? In the New Testament, there are nine different words that are used to speak of sorrow or grief. The one that's used in this passage, the word mourn, According to Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words, that verb is the strongest verb in the Greek to speak of mourning or grieving or sadness. 
Now, you would agree with me when I tell you that the history of mankind is a history of sorrow, of pain, and of grief, right? Right from the outset of man's existence, we read of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, the woman, to the woman, God said, this is after they fell, after they sinned. Then God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, Adam. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So right from the start, when sin entered the picture, pain, sorrow, grief, mourning of some sort took place. Shortly after that, next, very next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel, and then he begins to fear for himself that he also will be killed. And from this point on, folks, mankind has known varying degrees of grief and of sorrow and of pain that is a direct result of man's fallen condition. One of Job's comforters was right when he said this, yet a man is, that is, is born to trouble just as surely as the sparks from a fire float upwards. In other words, pain, suffering, mourning, grief, it's inevitable. We live on a broken planet, right? And all of us, to some varying degrees, grieve, mourn, have sorrow, pain, difficulty. Everybody here is touched by that. Now, there are different kinds of, of mourning, okay, uh, that are referenced in Scripture. First of all, there's just the general, the general sorrow of life. Uh, it's just simply that's the, that brought, things that are brought upon us that we grieve and we mourn just naturally. People need to grieve. They need to cry. They need to have some kind of relief from their hurt and their pain. People who won't cry but will keep the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the grief in actually hurt themselves at a very deep level. Human beings need this kind of relief. We have an American, I think it's American colloquialism that you've heard it. Uh, I think it's American, I don't know. But have you ever heard, or maybe you say it, well, good grief. You've heard that, right? Yeah, we all say, isn't that a weird thing to say? Good grief? Yeah. That doesn't make sense, really, if you think about it, but it really... John Ogilvy wrote a book called The Bush is Still Burning, and in there he talks about grief, and he says this, quote, grief is the healing process given to us as a gift of God. There's a, there is a grief that is healthy. Abraham, when his beloved wife Sarah died, it says he wept, and rightly so. David, the psalmist, wept because he was, was lonely. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for brooks of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? He's in a despondent place. He's in a very lonely place. And he weeps. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because in, in the book of Jeremiah, you often see him lamenting and grieving and crying 
over the situation of his nation. Jeremiah 9, 1, Oh, that my head were waters and that my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughters of my people. He was grieving and weeping. Timothy, in the New Testament, he wept because he was very discouraged. I thank God, Paul writes, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, Timothy, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. And even Paul, because of his deep concern and anguish for the the Judaizers, these people who were coming in behind him as he would plant a church, they would come in and try to distort the pure gospel that he had preached when he founded the church. And he says this in, in, in Acts 21, verse 30, Therefore I watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. Folks, this is just the normal, appropriate form of grieving. Uh, it is God's gift to us to deal with painful and sorrowful situations. There is a time when, when grieving is an appropriate response to life. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. I don't think it's on the screen, but it says there's a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. But there's another kind of mourning that you see in the Scriptures that is not proper. It's a kind of mourning that comes from a person who has unmet evil desires, who, who has lust that just can't be satiated. For example, there was a man named Amnon, one of David's sons. He mourned and he wept until he became sick. And you know why? Because he wanted to have an intimate relationship. He had a crush on his own stepsister. Now that's perverse, right? And he, he wanted her so badly that he just mourned and he wept. Ahab, I think hands down the absolute most wicked king the northern ten tribes of Israel ever had. Ahab had wanted a man by the name of Naboth he had wanted Naboth's vineyard. He went and tried to, to buy it, and Naboth wouldn't sell it. And it says this, So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned his way his face. and wouldn't eat no food. He didn't get his way. It wasn't his property, Right? Oh, he mourned for the wrong reason. Ahab, that's his inheritance. I don't care if you are king. It's not right for him to give you that which was his father's and his father's father's and his father's father's father. What are you asking for? What are you grieving for? It's not yours to take. So that was a wrong time to mourn. There's also the kind of mourning, I think, that can be extended too long. It comes from people who can't let others go. Sort of an extended mourning. Um, some people become basket cases when somebody close to them passes away. There is going to be a time of mourning. And there is a healthy time to mourn. But sometimes it goes beyond what is healthy. I've spoken to people who are still mourning 
even after 20, 25 years of losing a husband or a loved one. And they continue to grieve. And this, this was going to happen in the case of even some believers. And so Paul tells them, and you know this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but I do want, don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's just a euphemism for having died. The believers fall asleep. He said, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. It's one thing to grieve for the loss of a loved one because grief is part of that healing process and it reflects the deep love you had for them. But if it goes too far, it becomes unhealthy and it shows you don't trust God. It shows you you act like there's no hope. And Paul warns him, look, don't don't be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've died. I don't want you to sorrow as though there were no hope. And then there's there's another kind of... I guess you would call it sorrow, grieving because of something that maybe you've done as a result of a decision you've made. You feel guilty. There are some people who get super sorry and super mournful as a way of kind of atoning for a horrendous falling that they did, something they they sinned. and, And so they kind of adopt this hang dog look and, and, and they beat themselves up constantly. David is a great example of somebody who mourned beyond what he should have mourned because of a mistake he made. Uh, after his son Absalom, and Absalom was this very good-looking young man, had hair for days, and he, he wound up getting killed. And then when David got the word about Absalom's death, he went into this state of mourning Now, of course, he was sad that his son died, but if you know the context, his son had tried to kill his dad, had tried to usurp the throne from his dad, actually ran his dad out of the palace, and his dad was a fugitive for a while from his own son. His son undermined his leadership and actually became an enemy of his own father. And so he eventually got killed at the hands of some of David's men, and they tell David... And it says this, Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said this, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, Oh, if only I had died in your place, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, Joab, David's chief military leader, was told, Behold, You'd think the king would be happy that the guy that sought his life and usurped his authority and drove him out of the palace. you think the king would be happy? No. Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that the king is grieved for his son. Instead of celebrating that he's no longer being attacked by his own family member, he's grieving and the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then Joab had his fill. All right, this is ridiculous. Joab came to the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life. The lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive if Absalom had lived and all of us had died instead, then you would have been pleased. 
Boy, that's a great speech, Joab says. Kind of takes David by the collars and shakes. Look, you're grieving because he died. Would you rather us all died? We were out there trying to save your life, save your family, save your throne from this wayward son. But David had, was taking it far beyond. He was grieving. And the reason he was grieving, you want to know the reason? You find this remorse was because of the consequence of his own sin years earlier with whom? Bathsheba. You remember that sordid tale? Yeah. He was told earlier in 2 Samuel by the prophet Nathan, here's what the Lord says to you. This is after he confronted David with that horrendous sin. Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of all, in the sight of this son. So David, when it finally happened years later, and his own son rose up against him in his own household, when he saw the, the wickedness of his sons, even Amnon being mournfully sick over trying to sleep with his own stepsister. All of this was coming back on David, and he starts mourning, yes, because of Absalom, but I guarantee it was motivated by a strong sense of guilt because he was told this was going to be the consequences again. And folks, this again is simply an illicit type of mourning. This isn't the kind of mourning that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, 4. And, and listen, what Jesus is talking about in our, our passage here is not even the general kind of proper mourning that we discussed earlier. So what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking in this passage about the kind of sorrow that Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Look at this passage. For godly sorrow. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. Leading to salvation. Never to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So when Jesus talks about mourning, after saying that a person who is poor in spirit is a person who sees themselves as, as morally and spiritually bankrupt, that's an appeal to our intellect. We realize, we come to terms with the fact that we are morally and spiritually bankrupt. He now says that upon realizing your bankruptcy, blessed are those who are broken over it. In other words, your intellectual, you understand it intellectually that there is nothing good within you. You're poor in spirit, bankrupt. Now, what should your response be? And this is an appeal to the emotions, folks. He says, now realizing that, your proper response is to mourn, to be sorrowful over the fact that you have nothing to get yourself saved by. You want to you go on a blessed quest? Here is the starting line. First of all, you've got no way of entering the quest on your own merit. And when you finally realize you don't, the proper response is to be broken before God. You know what it sounds like? Let me show you what it sounds like. Having told you what I just told you about David, David at one point got a finger put right in his chest 
and held to the fire by Nathan the prophet. God knows what you've done with Uriah, how you had him killed, that you've slept with his wife, and all of those things. David, David finally said, I have sinned against God. He finally starts to, and he quits hiding it. He quits grieving about it. And in Psalm 51, it's a beautiful psalm, and it's written as a response to finally not sweeping it under the carpet anymore, not trying to hide. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean, wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 16, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings, the sacrifice of God, listen to this, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David got it. He realized before God, I need you to forgive. I need your cleansing. I need you. And the most valuable thing that I can do right now, realizing my brokenness, is to break before you and acknowledge you. Just like Job in Job 42, uh, 42 verse 5, Job says this, late, late in the book of Job, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That sounds like Isaiah when confronted with the holiness of God. In the year King Uzziah died, behold, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his, and, and he was, and his train filled the temple. And there were these angels flying around saying, holy, 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 holy. And he finally he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When faced with the holiness of God, his response was right. He broke and saw himself in relation to that. That day that Jesus told, the, told uh, Peter and the rest of them to, to throw their net on the other side of the boat. They'd been out trying to catch fish, and, and, and he, they, they finally catch this thing after they do what Jesus said. And Peter's first reaction when he come to terms with the fact, I'm in the presence of a holy God. He says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's the kind of mourning that gets you going on a blessed quest to have a relationship with God. I fear, folks, and let me get on my soapbox. I fear, generally speaking, that too many churches have softened sin. And we've downplayed the holiness of God to the point where we think we can just strut into His presence and join a church and be glib about it. And we never come to the point of going, He's holy, I am anything but. And I need to fall before Him and beg as a somebody who begs for food, beg God to forgive me. Mourn over my sin, not take it so lightly. You see, happiness or blessedness, though, folks, is not in the mourning itself. It comes, in a, it comes from God's response to it. 
Let me say that again. Happiness or blessedness isn't in the morning itself. It comes from God's response to it. David, once again, still talking. And, and, and Psalm 32 is still David writing about that period of about a year, scholars tell us, from the time he sinned with Bathsheba and he began to hide it. And he, he didn't deal with it for about a year. Psalm 32 speaks to that. This is David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Verse 1 of Psalm 32, blessed. Same word. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he goes on to say, when I kept silence about it, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. My vitality dried up like the drought of summer. But I said to the Lord, I will confess my sins and you forgave me. See, David got to that point where he realized true blessedness, true happiness will only come to those who mourn over their sinfulness. Those who upon recognition of their spiritual bankruptcy become brokenhearted and cry out to God. For his mercy and his grace. Listen to this passage out of the book of James. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see the quest? Where does it start? God, nothing in of myself can I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. Remember the old hymn? Yeah, that, the, the hymn writer got it. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? Somebody once said this, and I love this quote. Nobody ever came into the kingdom of God who didn't in some way come mourning over their sin. And those who are truly kingdom people will live with an ongoing sense of mourning over, their, over the sin that is in their lives. It is not the person who talks of the struggle to conquer some aspect of sin in their life that concerns me. It is the person who professes to know Christ but never seems to be broken over those areas of sin and just live almost oblivious to the, its existence in their lives. Folks, do you realize one of our dangers, me included, is that we become very comfortable with our sin? We just tell people, that's just the way I am. We're critical and we're hateful sometimes. Well, that's just me. They don't like me. They can just, but No, that's sinful. Stop it, right? But we, we tend to, to kind of be proud of ourselves for our gruffness and our abrasiveness, for our attitudes, and we need to see them the way God sees them. It's sin. Quit treating people like that, right? Some Christians will spend all of their lives trying to find happiness. They, they go to seminars, they see counselors, they read books, they listen to tapes. And what they really need to do, perhaps, is mourn before God and say, Oh God, before you and you only have I done this thing. My tongue has become so sharp, Lord, it doesn't even have the Spirit of grace or Christ mixed in with it at all. And I need to repent before you. You see, when you see yourself as spiritually bankrupt, you can respond in several ways. You can deny it like the Pharisees did and just put on a phony front and, and, and live a life of deception that makes everybody think you're really perfect. 
And everybody in those days thought the, of all the people who were getting in the kingdom of God. Just read down further in chapter 5 of Matthew. Except your righteousness exceed those of the scribes and Pharisees. Nobody, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And I can imagine there was a gasp from the crowd. How can you be more righteous than a Pharisee? Those guys are, got it happening. But they were putting on a front, as you well know. Or you could admit it. You can try to change yourself. That's another way to deal with it. You can admit it and then despair yourself so much that you go out and you hang yourself like Judas did. Judas was sorrowful over what he did, but his response was anything but right. He went out and killed himself after he had sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's not the way to handle it. You know how to handle it? You turn it, you admit it, and you turn to God for grace and mercy. Psalm 51. That's where the blessedness comes from, folks. That's the posture. We realize if I'm going to walk with God, then I need to keep, I need to keep track, keep, a, keep an eye on myself. At Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. And you watch yourself and you keep a short record. Lord, what I just said to that person was wrong. I, I owe them an apology. I don't want to carry that through another day, Lord. The fight I had with my sister, the, the words we had, that was wrong on my part. I'm going to go to them and reconcile and get that right. I don't want to go to sleep tonight having known I did that. That thing that I took that wasn't mine, I want to get that right. That's mourning over your sin. It's recognizing what it is and keeping a short count. That's the posture. But look at the promise. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be what? comforted para kaleo para beside kaleo to call it means to call alongside the verb mourn is in the present tense signifying that those who continually mourn those who recognize all of the time don't get desensitized to your sin right we get so comfortable with it we begin to just live with it as though it were not an issue those who continually mourn will be continually comforted. That's the implication of the verse. You want to be continually comforted? Be continually mourning. Every time I do something wrong, Holy Spirit, I know that grieved you. I know that quenched your work in my heart. Forgive me. Let's pick it back up and let me try again. And every step of the way, He is with you, right? Every step of the way. He never discards you, but he always wants you to see those areas. Jesus said when the Spirit has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. In other words, he wants you to know what's sin. He wants you to know what's righteous and be able to pick between the two and do the right thing. That's part of his ministry in your life, so don't quench him. So the promise is being comforted. The word comforted is akin to the very word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. He is called the what? Comforter, right? You see the connection? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. By whom? By the Comforter. Don't quench the Spirit, right? Folks, there's a future aspect to this verse, but I believe it's applicable for us right now. I mean, there's a coming a day... And I'm looking forward to this day where Frank is no longer have the presence of that propensity 
to sin against my Lord. But I tell you what now, it's not going to happen on this side of the grave. I'm looking for the day when we're home. And the Bible says in Revelation 21, 4, and God's going to wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, neither shall be there any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Aren't you looking forward to that day? There's going to be a day when grief will no longer be a part of our makeup. There will be nothing to be sorrowful about, for we won't have the propensity to sin, and we will be holy and perfect. But until that day, those who constantly are aware of their sin and mourn over it, deal with it. Don't cuddle it. Don't coddle it. Don't excuse it. Confess it. And you keep a short record of that. Lord, that was wrong. That attitude was wrong. That spirit didn't work. That attitude, that action was wrong. Forgive me, God. The comforter comes and says, you're right, that was wrong. Let's make it right next time, Frank. And he stays with me. Never leaves me, never forsakes me. I love what one man said. God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop. Broken clouds to give rain. Broken grain to give bread. Broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Jacob limping from Jabbok who has power with God and men. It is Peter weeping bitterly who returns to great pow- greater power than ever. Folks, it's when we, we break. We say, God, before you I have sinned. And we're broken in spirit and we're contrite in spirit. That's when the comfort comes. And folks, that's when this quest to follow Jesus for the rest of your life becomes blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the instruction in your word. Thank you for the application to our lives. And just this reminder that, Lord, you want us to be constantly aware of those things, those sins which so doth easily beset us. And Father, that we would quickly put them off, that we would not entertain them, we would not coddle them, we would not excuse them, but that we would quickly forsake them. And in your strength, live differently, more righteously, more godly. As we walk away from this place today, may this message resonate in our hearts and take root to bring forth fruit of righteousness in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. May the Lord bless you.